Congregation, this evening I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 88, our scripture reading and sermon text for this evening. Psalm 88, page 494 in the Pew Edition Bible. We read Psalm 88 as follows. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord, congregation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Would you please keep your Bibles open this evening to Psalm 88 as we follow through this song carefully this evening. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, Psalm 88 is a psalm that excites me. It's one that I've wanted to preach on for many years, but I've been intimidated by it. You can see why. I'm excited to preach it, but it's also intimidating. Why? Because this is the darkest of all the psalms in the 150 Psalm Psalter of the Old Testament. It is the saddest, the most profoundly sorrowful by any stretch of the imagination. What are we to do with this? This song of Heman the Ezraites. What are you to make of that? Not only in terms of understanding the message of this psalm, but how you appropriate that, how we appropriate that for our own lives. One of the reasons why I've wanted to preach from this psalm has to do with a, a broader issue, and that is the issue of how are we to embrace the songs of lament in the Old Testament? It is the largest category of psalms in the Psalter. 
I don't know if that surprises you, but it's not, first of all, songs of praise. They're songs of confession, but laments. And a lament, boys and girls, is simply a song of sorrow. A song where a psalmist or a group of people cry out to the Lord for his salvation when it seems as though things are going terribly wrong. And it may even seem, just like Psalm 10 indicates, it may seem that God is far removed or God has turned his back on us. Surely all of us have had that experience at one time or another, haven't we? Where it seemed as though God is distant, God is not listening. Or we simply wrestle with the question, why would God do this to one of his own children? Why would we experience this in this way? Why is this happening to me? It's been suggested by some that Psalm 88 fits between 87 and 89 because they relate to the exile of the people of Jerusalem. In Psalm 87, that's a song of thanksgiving and praise for the glory of of Jerusalem, of the people of God. And in Psalm 89, we read of the sorrow of exile, of being carted off, and the people asking the question, what happened to that promise that God had made to his people, to David, that there would be someone reigning upon his throne forever? And that the kingdom of the Lord, the kingdom of heaven, would not fail. Perhaps that's where Psalm 88 fits in the Psalter. But let's get back to the question of lament. We like to sing songs of praise. It's very popular, very common among most evangelical churches. But how often do we embrace the lament? How often do we incorporate that as part of our corporate worship? There are times, there ought to be times, especially in times of great distress, a time that we've gone through over the last two years where we we come before the Lord and we ask the Lord, why must this happen this way? It seems that there are no answers, at least no easy answers for us. I'm going to read to you what one person said in regards to the importance of embracing the lament as part of our worship. He talks about the fact that One of the criticisms that the more conservative Christians have against contemporary worship is that it's too much in the entertainment mode. He said, but perhaps the problem is not that worship is is entertainment, but that it's not entertaining enough. Because it is not only comedy that is entertaining, but also, he says, tragedy. Tragedy is also part of the gamut of of entertainment. He writes, Christian worship should immerse people in the reality of the tragedy of the human fall and of all subsequent human life. It should provide us with a language that allows us to praise the God of resurrection while lamenting the suffering and agony that is our lot in a world alienated from its creator. And it should thereby sharpen our longing for the only answer to the one great challenge we must all face sooner or later. Only those who accept that they are going to die can begin to look with any hope to the resurrection. I think he's exactly right. And perhaps during the pandemic, we've had more of an opportunity to reflect upon our own mortality, especially those of us who are younger. Because young people don't think of their mortality very often. I said that to my students this past week, many of whom are young men. 
We don't think about our mortality, that someday we will all die, sooner or later. We will not live forever. So what will you do in the face of that, in the face of your mortality, in the face of the fact that we live in a broken world, a hurting world, a painful world, a world of disease and violence and hatred that seems to spread throughout the world, both in rich nations and poor nations, among the mighty as well as those who are weak. So we look today and tonight at the the Psalm of Darkness, Psalm 88. If you're taking notes tonight, really I've divided this sermon or this message along the lines of three stanzas. In verses 1 through 9, we see that the darkness deepens. It's a description of what the psalmist is experiencing. And then secondly, verses 10 through 12, describe the pit of death. And then finally, in verses 13 through 18, we have what I'll call the unanswered prayer. The unanswered prayer. And what links these three sections is the fact that they all begin with the cry. The cry for help. O Lord, notice, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Now, if you listen carefully to Psalm 88, maybe you'll read it again tonight or during the course of the week, but you'll notice that the most positive thing, the brightest moment of this psalm is at the very beginning. O Lord, God of my salvation. That's the expression of faith. That's the expression of hope. He doesn't have all the answers to why he's going through this dreadful time. He's miserable. He's on the verge, it seems, on the very brink of death. And yet he can say, you are the God of my salvation. Not the God who has abandoned me. Not the God who has turned his back on his promises. But you are the God of my salvation. Somehow, some way, you will deliver your people. We don't know how. We don't know when but you will deliver your people. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. There's a persistence. There's a perseverance in this psalm that I think is something we ought to cling to. It's something that we ought to remember in our times of deep darkness when we're on the brink of despair. The psalmist is simply saying, I will not give up. I will not let go. I will not run away. I will not simply lie down and die. I will call to the Lord day after day after day, even if that prayer is not immediately answered. Notice his description. There are 12 descriptions in verses 3 through 7. 12 descriptions of death. My soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol, that is, near to the realm of the dead. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. And then he says, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me. With all your ways. So it's not as though he thinks, well, I I wish God could do something about this, this terrible plight that I'm in, this terrible situation, these circumstances that seem to, to mimic death. 
But God is helpless to do this. God simply stands along the sidelines and says, I'd like to help, but I can't help. He says, no, you have brought this in. You are sovereign. And God's sovereignty, you see, raises certain questions in every believer's heart. If God is sovereign, why do his people suffer? If God is sovereign, why do little children die of cancer? Why is there brokenness? Why is there hostility and violence in the world? Why is it that the powerful nations abuse and attack the poorer nations, the strong, the weak? Why does this happen if God is sovereign? We crave meaning. We crave answers, do we not? Haven't you had that as well? We're trying to understand why God in his wisdom and his loving care would allow these things, would ordain these things to happen. Sometimes we simply don't know. And one of the worst things that we can do when people go through this is simply offer platitudes. Offer platitudes. Be flippant about the way we address people's pain and suffering. Sometimes the most helpful thing that you can do is simply to be alongside of that person. To hold that person, as it were, by the hand. To put your arm around them. To show them that you love them. That you may not have all the answers. You have not been given insight into the will of God. And yet, and yet you want to steer them to hope. That God, in one way or another, will answer our prayers. So how do we respond to these things? Anger? Despair? Passivity, shrugging our shoulders, saying, well, there's nothing we can do about it. What we're describing here, brothers and sisters, is something very similar to what we call today depression, or what a previous generation called melancholy. Even his friends shun him. Did you notice that? That's why the end of the psalm says, darkness is my only companion. Family, friends, all the people who were close to him seem to have abandoned him. This is depression. And depression, you see, is different than simply, well, we have a bad day. We all have bad days. The weather's not nice. The weather's too cold in March, so we're gloomy. We complain. That's not really depression. Depression is something much more severe, much more lasting, much more difficult to get out of. It's dark. It's menacing. Often the description in the Bible of depression is being in a pit, a pit that we cannot climb out of. Let me read to you what one author says about depression. He says, profound depression is a day in, day out, night in, night out, almost arterial level of agony. Meaning that depression is a form of suffering and it is persistent. It is relentless. He says it is pitiless, unrelenting pain that affords no window of hope, no alternative to a grim and bitter existence, and no respite, that is, no rest from the cold undercurrents of thought amid feelings that dominate the horribly restless nights 
of despair. Now, you may have experienced this sort of depression, but maybe you know somebody who has. And I know I have certainly ministered to people over the years who have suffered that kind of depression. I think that's exactly what the psalmist, what Heman the Ezraite is suffering from here in Psalm 88. The Bible speaks about this as well. Let no one think that Christians are immune or Christians shouldn't suffer depression. You can have, for example, the Apostle Paul. Read some time in one sitting the entire letter, second letter to the Corinthians. Some have suggested that Paul wrote that in the context of great depression, great sorrow. The the psalmist time and time again expressed that sort of depression as well, of darkness, of trying to understand, trying to make sense of horrible circumstances. Great saints in the history of the church have suffered from depression as well. Martin Luther often would suffer from depression, and his close associate, Philip Melanchthon, would say to him in those times, he says, let's go to Psalm 46 and read or sing Psalm 46 together. God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. In other words, what I'm saying is, this sort of experience that we're reading about is not something that we can be exempt from. But neither should we cast judgment upon Christians who do suffer in this way, claiming that, oh, it's simply a lack of faith. It's simply a form of unbelief. Sometimes these struggles, these profound, painful struggles of the soul are part of of our Christian experience. This is what it means for some people to live in a fallen and broken world. How do we minister to people like that? Again, we don't offer cheap platitudes. We aren't flippant. But we embrace them. And we point them to the scriptures. We point them to the hope of the gospel. We point them to Jesus Christ, as we'll see in just a moment. But going from the darkness deepening, we see in verses 10 through 12... The pit of death. Again, starting with the statement, every day I call upon you, O Lord. It's the idea here that he will not give up. And I think that's important as well. If you are someone who suffers from habitual depression, if you're helping somebody who suffers from habitual depression, there are times where you simply have to force feed yourself or force feed the other person the scriptures. A person may say to you, I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like worshiping with God's people when I'm depressed. I just as soon sit in a corner and feel sorry for myself. I'll brood about it. In those times, we have to bring the word to bear. We have to say we will pray even if we have not heard an answer. He says, I spread out my hands to you. That's the way... That's the way the Jews would pray. They'd raise their hands to heaven. And notice what he does here in verses 10 through 12. He poses the question to God. How is your name praised if your people die off? If your people suffer this horrible death as a result of being abandoned? Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed Rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon, the place of judgment? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness 
in the land of forgetfulness? What he's saying is, isn't God magnified in his glory, in resurrection, in life, in healing, in blessing, in strength, in power? The answer is yes. This is why he struggles. He says, how is God glorified? How is God glorified if his people ultimately die off in their suffering? And you have juxtaposed those two things, uh, wonders and the dead, praise and the departed, faithfulness and the grave, loving kindness and destruction, wonders and darkness and righteousness and the land of forgetfulness. What is God to do? What is God up to in these things? What happens, by the way, if a person suffering in this darkness ultimately loses hope, falls into despair, remains in the pit? I think it's appropriate, I believe it's pertinent this evening to address something that I don't know over the years that I've ever addressed other than recently in preaching from this psalm. And that is, what does the Bible have to say about professing Christians who take their own life in suicide? This past semester, this past fall, I was teaching a class on depression, among other things. And the students had asked me not only to address the issue of depression, but they said, let's talk. Can we talk a little bit about Christians who take their own life? And I've had opportunity in the last few years as well to address this in light of personal situations that I have encountered. What do we say in the face of Christians who take their own lives? Well, we have to say, first of all, unequivocally, that the Bible calls suicide sin. It is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. We are not free to take our own life. It is murder of the self. Nevertheless, we ought to be very careful in how we speak about those situations. I have witnessed, I have heard, I have read of situations where people have offered very unbiblical counsel in the face of suicide. In some Christian traditions, for example, suicide is considered a mortal sin. There is no forgiveness. One is consigned to hell for suicide. And if you want to see one of the outcomes of that sort of teaching, I recall a number of years ago reading the book The Fatal Shore, which is the history of Australia as a penal colony. Prisoners from Great Britain were sent to Australia early on in the 1800s to populate Australia. And the conditions were so severe, so harsh, so inhumane that the people there contemplated, the prisoners contemplated suicide. But those who were Roman Catholic, particularly the Irish, did not want to commit suicide because they knew it was a mortal sin. You know what they did as a a way of getting around that or finding a loophole, as it were, in the theological tradition? They would have two of them who would draw lots one of them would be the victim of a stabbing. So one prisoner would stab the other, and the one who was stabbed would die. His pain, his suffering were over. And the one who committed the murder 
was going to be hanged. But before he was hanged, he would offer confession to the priest and be absolved of his sin and therefore not be sent, not be consigned to hell. Can you imagine? Was that sort of thinking that went on because people were so desperate to get out of a situation that they were in that was so miserable, that was lifelong, that instead of resorting to suicide, they simply killed one another and then faced the consequence of public execution. But even those in the Protestant tradition, even those in the Reformed tradition, can speak that way. I've heard people speak that way. My students, some of them, spoke that way to me. They said, but professor, how can there be How can there be salvation for someone who takes his life and has no opportunity to repent of what he has done? That's a good question. And one of the best answers that I have found is in a book by Dr. Brian Chappell. Dr. Chappell was at one time the president of of Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. He's now a Presbyterian pastor in Peoria, Illinois. He has a book called The Hardest Sermons You'll Ever Preach. He has a section in that book about funeral services, funeral messages in the context of suicide. One of those sermons is a sermon he preached himself in the aftermath of a death, of the death of a colleague and friend who suffered for many years from deep depression, chronic depression. And in a moment of weakness, a moment of despair, he took his own life. Now, You can imagine if you're the pastor having to deliver that funeral message, there is the additional burden not only of having to address the family and their sorrow and their grieving, but imagine all the questions being raised by the congregation in the aftermath of their pastor dying of suicide. Was he a true believer? Was his ministry authentic in the years he was with us? Was it all a sham? What are we to make of this? Were we to blame for this? Did we add to his depression? What could we have done to prevent this from happening? There there could be all kinds of problems congregationally that have to be addressed in a message like that. I want to read to you a little bit about what Dr. Chappell has to say on the issue of the suicide of a professing Christian because I think his counsel is biblical and wise He writes, some Christian traditions teach that suicide is an unforgivable sin. The assumption is that one who takes his own life is not able to repent of this sin, and so it condemns him to eternity without God's forgiveness. This kind of thinking seems obviously flawed because it assumes that all other sins left unrepentant due to some other cause of untimely death, not to mention neglect, forgetfulness, or misunderstanding, don't condemn even though they have not made it into a prayer of repentance. Think about that. Further, such thinking wrongly presumes that adequate repentance, rather than divine mercy, is the cause of our salvation. And finally, a person thinking this way must assert that God will not show mercy to those who, through a tortured psyche or deranged thought, make an awful choice that clearly demonstrates they are most in need of divine grace. He goes on to say, regarding the effects of sin upon our our minds, our bodies, 
He says, the corruption of our entire nature includes our physical world and the world of our emotions and thoughts. We damage ourselves and others if we do not consider the full extent of this entirely corrupted nature. Yet the corruption of our nature means that the effects of the fall are entwined around every dimension of our being, physical, mental, and spiritual. Here's his pastoral advice. Willingly succumbing to these entanglements of our corrupted nature, suicide, is not excusable for the Christian, but it is understandable and forgivable. We do not excuse the sin that is a consequence of yielding to the corruptions of our nature because the Bible states, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Our spiritual resources through Christ are sufficient to resist the temptation of our corrupted nature. And yet, at the same time, anyone who has ever snapped at his spouse when he is tired or been cranky because a meal was late or been blue because the day was rainy or thought he would never get well again because a cold lasted for more than two weeks, such a person can begin to understand how one who, after months and months of mental anguish, that he could not explain or escape, could have let down his guard and plummeted into the shadows that obscured the light of God for a time. And when you begin to understand this, then you know that what is still not excusable can be, must be, forgivable. And I would agree with that as well. Understandable, not excusable, but forgivable. Finally, in verses 13 through 18, we have what I'll call the unanswered prayer. But, oh, but I, O oh Lord, notice, I cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? So first, in verse 15, he looks back, afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. And then he looks Godward in verses 15b through 17. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. And then at verse 18, he looks for human comfort. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companion, companions have become darkness. Some versions will say, darkness is my only friend. Darkness is my only companion. Do you sense tonight, boys and girls, brothers and sisters, do you sense tonight the helplessness of the psalmist here? This is a disturbing kind of psalm, isn't it? It's not the kind of psalm that you see embroidered and framed and put on someone's wall in their house. (laughs) Darkness has become my only friend. If you walked into a house like that, you may say, I may not want to stay here. I've had very few people. I only know of one person who said to me, this song really speaks to me. I would be troubled if many people said, this song really speaks to me. But I've had one who said, this this is a psalm I have read over and over again. And to the person who suffers greatly, even now, and for years he has been. 
And it does not offer easy answers. There is no fairy tale ending. And they all lived happily ever after. Amen. Done. It ends with darkness is my only companion. I remember a number of years ago at an examination for candidacy, a pastor asking a question about the Psalms. And he made the observation, which I thought at the time was a rather odd observation. He said, but we know that in the Psalms, they all end with a happy resolution, don't they? And he was expecting the answer, yes. And I wanted to say in that occasion, no, they don't all end with a happy resolution. Psalm 88 ends with a question. It ends with a cry of pain and suffering. But this is also a psalm that anticipates an answer. Do you know what the answer is? The answer to Psalm 88? He cries day and night. And even though he did not receive an answer then, we know that ultimately the Lord did bring an answer. How does the Lord answer those who are on the verge of despair, the brink of death, who are in the pits, who feel abandoned by everyone? Psalm 88 is a psalm that points us to Jesus Christ. It points us to Jesus Christ as the one who ultimately suffers as our substitute for sin. The one who cries out in desolation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who previous to that cried out in Gethsemane, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. This prayer is answered in the person of Jesus Christ who through his suffering, through his abandonment, would come deliverance, would come life, would come victory, would come salvation. The good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is that darkness will not have the final word. To use the language of the Apostle Paul, death has been swallowed up in victory. Death has been swallowed up by Jesus Christ who took upon himself the pain and the sorrow of this broken world and gave us, in exchange, eternal life. He was forsaken by the Father so that we might be accepted as his children. He was abandoned that we might receive the kingdom of heaven. So in those times of darkness, in those moments of agony, when you are on the verge of despair, when you cry out day after day after day after day, O Lord, hear my prayer. O God of my salvation, know for a fact. Either minister to yourself or minister to those who are suffering in this way. Point them to Jesus Christ and his suffering, that he is one who is acquainted with your grief. And not only is he acquainted, but he has overcome that grief. He has been victorious in that sorrow. He will give us everlasting joy. May the Lord use this word tonight and the days to come for his glory and for the joy of his people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
in our moments of darkness, when we feel that we are all alone, even our friends have abandoned us, and our only companion is darkness, we pray that you would lead us to the person of Jesus Christ, in whom is our hope and our salvation, knowing that he has conquered sin and death and hell for us, so that we might enjoy forever your your glory. So bless this word to our hearts, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.